Tantamount Season 1 is a true crime podcast on the Washington, D.C. serial killer, the Freeway Phantom. Due to the graphic nature, it is not intended for those under the age of 18. This is Blaine Pardo. Welcome to our podcast. I'm joined as usual with my daughter and co-author, Victoria Hest. Welcome back, everyone. We hope you're all enjoying the Tantamount podcast. We certainly are having fun pulling them together. With this episode is an important one for this case. We call it the Phantom of St. E's, but the real meat of what we're going to cover is around the topic of geographic profiling. I have to admit, when we started working on the book on the Freeway Phantom, I really only had a bit of surface knowledge around geographic profiling. I'm not an expert now, but I have read a fantastic textbook on the subject and have studied up on it. We really didn't have a choice. One of our confidential police informants gave us a copy of a geographic profile done of the murders in 2005. That forced the issue because it was very revealing about the potential suspects. Geography plays a key role in these murders. The killer operated in a relatively small number of neighborhoods. The roads were important to him, and that was where he dumped the remains of his victims. If you analyze the geography, it can really help focus on what is important to him, what were his ties to the community. And in this case, the geographic profile puts you right on ground zero. Let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Let's talk about how geographic profiling works. When I started with this, I thought it was a matter of just drawing circles around the crime scenes and seeing where they interlock. There's a lot more to it than that. This is some pretty serious math in play here. Geographic profiling looks at where the victims resided, where were they last seen, which is where they had their contact with the killer, and where their bodies get dumped. These then factor into a variety of other variables, which include the road system, traffic patterns, traffic volumes at that time of day, etc. They look at things like the travel time to and from the crime scene and other criminal theories such as rational choice. Now, geographic profiling is not intended to tell you where the killer lives or works, but that can be a result. What it does do is zero in on what are called anchor points. These are the places where the serial killer has a special connection of some sort. Now, in some cases, that can be their home. Likewise, it may be where they work. Many times it is neither. An anchor point is merely a place where the murderer has a high degree of familiarity and comfort. They frequent these spots. These are often the places where they're most comfortable with being. It may not be where they have ties now, but it's where they may have had connections in the past. The person that did the Freeway Phantom Geographic Profile was D. Kim Rosmo, out of the Center of Geospatial Intelligence and Investigation at the Texas State University. 
He was invited to pull it together by Detective Jim Trainum of the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police. It was a technique that was not available to the original investigators in the 1970s, and Trainum hoped that the use of this tool might help him as he reopened the Freeway Phantom murders. Geospatial intelligence originated out of the research done at Simon Fraser University's School of Criminology in British Columbia, Canada in 1989. Dr. Rosmo is is a pioneer in this field. It has helped investigators narrow down their searches for killers in active investigations. What I found interesting is that they really refined the formula and the techniques by looking at serial killings that had already been solved. In the case of the Night Stalker in California, they were able to retrofit the analysis, and it showed the very block that Richard Ramirez lived at when he had been committing the crimes. Rosmo also has applied this to a number of cold cases. I like the analysis done on the Jack the Ripper's murders myself. It was so cool to see this technique applied to these high-profile, unsolved cases. I agree. That was pretty neat. What was also interesting is that geographic profiling can't be used in every case. You really need a string of connected murders for it to be effective. You also need a certain kind of serial killer. Now, that sounds a little strange, but think of it this way. You need a killer who's not a rover. If you have a serial killer that, for example, travels the country and kills over widespread geographies over time, the tool's effectiveness diminishes because that kind of killer does not have a relevant anchor point. Well, in the case of the Freeway Phantom, we know he operated in a fairly tight area concentrated in the southeast neighborhoods of D.C. and just inside the Prince George's County, Maryland line. True. I found Dr. Rosmo's textbook on profiling absolutely fascinating to me. A lot more interesting than most textbooks I read in college. Not so much the math, but the thinking behind how serial killers operate. Why don't you go into that for a minute? I'm sure the listeners would like to hear it. Sure. You have to think of it in this way. A serial killer is often a hunter. There are multiple variables on how they hunt. Some lure their victims into place and kill them there. Like Jeffrey Dahmer. Exactly. Now, other killers stalk their prey and kill them either where they make contact with them or take them somewhere else after gaining control over them and kill them there. Well, then they must dispose of their victims. Some do this locally. They bury them in their own yard or in the basement of their house. Most try to put some distance between the victims and where they were slain. As you know, some killers use dump sites to dispose of multiple victims, while others spread their victims out over a variety of geographies. Well, that's the freeway phantom. We know he took seas of his victims, took them somewhere, most likely his house, killed them, then drove their bodies to where he left them. He started doing a dump site initially. Carol Spinks and Darlenia Johnson were found in a very small area, less than 15 feet apart. His other victims were left all over Southeast D.C. and Maryland. Right. Now, some of the theories I found in Dr. Rosmo's book was that there are zones where a serial killer will and won't operate. You want to think of these as concentric rings that kind of expand outward and imagine his home or place of work in the center. It's that anchor point. The neighborhood around that anchor point is really well known to the killer. He knows the roads, the side street, traffic, everything. The problem is he is known there too. 
So if he tries to pick up a victim, the people in that center ring may very well know who he is and make it easier for him to be captured. So a killer is less likely in many cases to operate in that center ring around their anchor point. Now the next ring out is where the real hunting for victims takes place. These are the neighborhoods and streets that the serial killer knows well. At the same time, he is not known there. For the most part, he's a stranger there. The comfort with the streets is pretty important. The killer has to be able to navigate with the victim to wherever he intends to kill them. To me, it feels like these are areas that he has spent a lot of time looking for potential victims. He's probably even made some trial runs from there back to where he kills them. If he's smart, he knows something about the police patrols there too. Exactly. The final outermost ring is huge. Now, this ring represents a geography where the killer is not likely to operate. He isn't familiar with that area, and there isn't any comfort he has with it. It's not his turf. This is the area where the killer is uncomfortable that he can pull off his crime and not get caught. I like to think of these as hunting zones. They factor into the calculations when it comes to geographic profiling as well. So as you can see, it's not as easy as pulling up Google Maps and drawing circles on it. There's a lot of things you have to consider when you go into this kind of profiling. Now, for me as an author, going to these neighborhoods some 40 years later, well, it's surreal. You can cruise the same streets and you see the same things the killer did. Sure, the cars are smaller and the apartments and homes are different in many cases, some better, some worse, but you get a vibe of what it was like for the phantom roaming and looking for prey. Detective Trainum didn't mess around when he wanted his geographic profiling done. He had Dr. Rosmo do it. And while it was done in 2005, the results still should stand as valid. I would like to point out that the geographic profile done for the freeway phantom cases did not include Tierra Ann Bryant. We know that the FBI considered her as part of the Freeway Phantom killings because she is part of their profile of the killer. When the Washington Metropolitan Police Department asked for the geographic profile, they didn't include her. Even so, I doubt it would have affected the results greatly. The location where she disappeared and where her body is found is, as I like to call it, in the zone of where the Phantom operated. By now, you probably want us to cut to the chase, so I will. Where did the geographic profile say that the anchor point was for this serial killer? St. Elizabeth's Hospital. St. Elizabeth's, or St. E's as a lot of locals call it, was not your typical psychiatric facility in the 1970s. It had been built around the time of the Civil War. It is huge. It's really a campus consisting of many buildings, gardens, etc. Even today, as they're tearing it down to put in new homes, it has a creepy factor about it. The windows are all barred. The doors and stairs have industrial screening. For decades, this hospital was where the government sent their criminals and citizens that suffered from their worst mental condition. They used shock treatments and experimental medications there. Those bars on the windows, those are not to keep people out, but to keep patients in. When we went down there, I have to admit, it gave me a creepy feeling. I mean, this is an anchor point for the killer a place that he had a special connection to. When you looked through the chain link fencing that now surrounds the site, it's easy to picture the patients peering out of the windows. Every door has a flat faded green mesh or bars. It was like a prison, but far worse. 
I would hate to be there at night, not because of any fear in the neighborhood, but you can stand there and imagine the sounds that came from those buildings, the muffled screams from the padded cells, the cries of the mad in the night. It really is a place right out of a Hollywood horror film. Remember the first two victims, Binks and Johnson? They were left on the I-295 freeway on the shoulder. Some 20 feet away was the perimeter fence for St. E's. That's how much this facility was tied to the killer. You have to wonder, did he wander the grounds there at some point to scope out where he would leave his victims years later? For me, this profile brings us back to looking at the suspects. From what we were able to gather through our research and reviewing court records, none of the Green Vega gang had a significant tie to St. Elizabeth's Hospital prior to their arrests. One was sent there after he was arrested for an evaluation, but none before, and none of them had worked there or had ever been patients there. That doesn't rule them out entirely, but the profile essentially is telling us that whoever the killer is had a tight bond with that location, and these guys just don't show that. That makes me turn to my very favorite suspect, Robert Askins. I knew you were going to go there. Duh. This guy spends decades in St. E's as a patient. That was where he was sentenced after his first murder conviction. Look. There's a number of suspects that the police looked at, but only one had a connection to St. Elizabeth's Hospital, and that was Robert Elwood Askins. I felt the same thing when I read this report. However, being impartial, I have to point out that there were thousands of patients that have been in and out of St. E's over the decades. It is entirely possible it was a doctor or a worker there. Remember that the hospital is an anchor point for the killer. He has some connection there. It doesn't necessarily mean he was a patient. It could be that he had a relative that was a patient and spent a lot of time there visiting. There's a lot of scenarios that can be concocted that would link people to Sainese. But what do you think? To me, it's another nail in the Robert Askins coffin. It points to him. However, we are trying to look at through the lens of the police and who they had as suspects. If that is your sample then it is Robert Askin. If, however, it was someone that the police didn't have as a suspect, well, that means it could be thousands of potential individuals. Our book presented the information on the geographic profile to the public for the very first time. It is a very important bit of information. I only wish the police had released this information earlier themselves. It may have generated some tips, got people thinking about their friends or relatives that may have had links to St. E's. It still can. Remember, this is a cold case. There's information at the end of each episode if you have any information that might assist authorities with closing these cases. This little nugget of information might just trigger a thought or memory that can help close these cases. In the next episode of Tantamount, serial killers rarely contact the authorities. The Freeway Phantom did. He had one of his victims write a note, a grisly message that he left on her dead body. The note is important because it is the killer speaking directly to the public and to the authorities. Please join us for Episode 9, The Voice of the Killer.
Tantamount is based on the book by the same name written by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. It is available from Wild Blue Press on Amazon.com. You can go to the author's blog at blainepardo.wordpress.com for additional information on these episodes. The Freeway Phantom is an unsolved case. All suspects named in this podcast are presumed innocent until proven guilty. If you have information that could help authorities, please call the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department at 202-727-9099 or via email at unsolved.murder at dc.gov. Tentamount is written and produced by Blaine Pardo and Victoria Hester. Our music was written and performed by Ed Miller. Production assistance provided by Cindy Pardo.